are back, finally, with the second part from the Women History Month, which is not anymore because we're in April right now, but we felt like it was necessary to follow up. And today we have a really special guest in a way. Um, so yeah, we have Claire Cahill today with us, and she is a producer and a first AD, and before that she was also my lecturer, <laughs> my tutor. Uh, well, our tutor for film production. Um, so yeah, nice to have you here, Claire. Thanks well, thank for doing this. Well, thank you for hosting this. me. It's a beautiful day <laughs> yeah. to be sitting here. Sorry to keep you here in a, in a room. Um, but yeah, we're also not in a studio as usual, so if you hear any differences, don't, don't comment on it, because Otto will cry. Um, and we can't have that. Yeah. We Some guy's crying, not a happy thing. He's a very special member of this team. Everybody <laughs> loves him. So, yeah, you've been a lecturer in AUB for how long now? Uh, I think I came, I came first in uh, 2014 to do mm -hmm. some guest lecturing uh, for assistant directing mostly to teach right. students how to schedule because I've been working with Marek um, on his film Turtle in the Sea mm -hmm. and we've had a very, very difficult day where there was a lot of work that had to be done, a lot of action, a lot of, um, a lot of location moving and somehow we managed to do it and so he said how did you manage to do it <laughs> uh, so that is the joy of being ready and being yeah. prepared so um, he asked me if I would come and do some uh, some work with the, the level four level five students and I was happy to do that I had previously been a teacher mm. uh, a, a long time ago I was a criminologist and I had been teaching criminology at the Melbourne at Melbourne yeah. University and for various reasons I had to stop and I thought I hadn't I'd lost that ability to teach but when I came back into the classroom it just felt like I was coming home and I was there with a sea of, of, of people who shared the same passion that I had for film, yeah. who shared the same willingness to learn and the same willingness to tell stories and I just thought actually you know I'd like to do this again. Fortunately the level six producing students needed some support as well so oh, I was invited to come back two weeks later and then I was invited to come back a week after that and then um, circumstances conspired again that there was a gap in the first year producing uh, course and I said I'd love to do it and Judith who was the head of department at the time said we'd love to have you so I, I really was excited and I started properly officially um, the end of 2014. Right before that as I said you you worked on a lot of films and uh, you've been a producer and a first assistant director um, so I was wondering whether there's like you found a difference between you know the first time first period you started working into film and now mostly regarding to women and like how you feel it is for them to get into the creative industry because of course you want to be from being a criminologist as well to a completely different thing but at the same time you know funnily enough it's not as different as yeah. it sounds um i wanted to go to to, to film school when i was younger uh, straight out of school but i was under my parents care because i was a minor and they wanted me to get a real job at the time, I resented the fact that they prevented me from following my passion. Mm -hmm. But actually, I realised that it was, a, it was a blessing for me because it meant that I got to widen my horizons before I came into, into film. So I ended up working as a clerk of courts and then as a criminologist. So what's the connection between film and criminology? Yeah. And the answer comes down to story. Yeah. So in a postmodern world, we, all, we understand that everything is a story. Right. Everything is a narrative. But the connection is even clearer than that because I began to do research into a PhD which unfortunately I wasn't able to complete but my PhD was, was looking at the social control of gender right. and at that time a young filmmaker called Kimberly Pierce was writing her first script and it so happened that I was writing about the subject of that script was, which was the, the story of a young transsexual man called Brandon Tina mm -hmm. and she was writing a script called Boys Don't Cry and I was researching the issues facing transsexual men with a group of people including uh, Jameson Green who ran FTM International and a law professor at Manchester Metro University, Dr Stephen Whittle, now Professor Stephen Whittle, who is himself a transsexual man. Mm -hmm. And so we were approached to give some feedback on the script that uh, Kimberly Pierce was writing. And that's when the penny dropped for me that I could then take the knowledge and research that I'd been doing in criminology and begin to tell stories. Yeah. So when I was unable to, con to continue with the PhD due to a period of ill health, I reassessed my priorities and thought, if I want to be making film, I've got to do that. I've got to be making film. 
and I embarked on the process of becoming a filmmaker. So for me, it was kind of um, kind of easy in a way because I was a bit older and I was used to failure <laughs> and I was used to rejection. So every time someone said, you can't do that, I said, well, I think I can. <laughs> and I would find a way to, um, to get around the barriers. I think it's harder for younger people at the moment. Yeah. So <laughs> it's um, because there are so many structural barriers. Um, they're so, they're, the market is saturated. The, yeah. In some ways, the democratisation of film that allowed me to get into film to, uh, without going through the, the gate of film degree has created a flood of people going into the industry without any qualifications. Mm. And so people who are coming through film school hopefully are learning the resources. And the biggest, biggest thing that I hope that people coming through film school learn is self-determination, a sense of confidence and a willingness to risk, even if it means a failure. The, it's important that you try, that you don't leave things in the tank, uh, because trying and failing means you learn. Not trying means not learning. The only way that you can continue to learn and develop is by doing it yeah. and taking the risk of failing. So as an older person, I had more resources emotionally to be able to deal with that. Whereas I understand for young people coming into the industry, the first rejection is the hardest thing. It's like the first heartbreak, isn't it? Yeah, literally. You do get over it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's, it's really like, yeah. I just I have, I have no words because like it, it it's really kind of inspiring as well because yeah as I said now for us it's a bit harder to just get into it without going through university but at the same time for me I'm really happy I came to university because I get to like learn before I hurt myself in a way if that yeah. makes sense yeah um, <clears throat> so yeah like but what I found a lot is that of course it's not a lot of girls that go into the film industry and even you know for my parents when they heard that that I wanted to do this. It was like, why? Mm. So do you find that there's, of course, a lot of that on, on set still, like since from when you started, mm. or now, is it better now? Is it more? It's starting to change at the moment. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the culture of film production is changing. When okay. I first started in the film, which was really only nine years ago, and, and even in nine years, there's been quite a significant change. I started in film and... I had several difficulties. Firstly, I was older than the average entrant to film, so it was very hard for me to get into the starter, um, starter grants. I was trying to get into the BBC, but I was too old to qualify for getting into the training programs at the, at the BBC. And I wasn't qualified enough to go into the level that I should have been going into, so I was stuck. So my real option was to move into independent film. Uh, a lot of independent film is unregulated. There's, there's no domain knowledge. By that I mean that every film is its own little organisation yeah. and there's no body of knowledge that can be handed to the next film, to the next film, to the next film. That's what you find in studios and broadcasters, that someone has the manual or the knowledge that they can train new people and as they make more films, that knowledge gets passed on and grown and grown. But when you have a, an independent film, the people come together, the knowledge is created and then they all go to the four corners of the world and the knowledge just goes patchily with them. So that was the hardest thing that I faced, was trying to learn how films were, were made. And in the end, I had to fall back on my own resources to, for my prior jobs to try to put together my own processes for understanding how we could manage this disparate group of people, all with very specialist skills, who all knew had a job that had to be done in a, per, in a, in a specific time to a specific budget. And I called back on my experience of running courtrooms uh, my experience of working as a volunteer emergency worker where I ran radio at task in the logistics to start to understand where the workflows were to bring in a, a more advanced concept of triage and what I mean by that triage is working out what has to be done first right. what has to be done before something else can be done yeah. so that we can then set the priorities for the day in a proper way so as we set the priorities for the running order of the day, we understand what is precedent to the, the, the work that we're going to do later in the day. For example, if you have an actress who's coming in and her character requires to have a very complicated hair, um, hairstyle, hairstyle, so you have an actress who requires a complicated hairstyle, that could potentially take up to two hours. But during the time that she's in the chair, other things could be happening. Yeah, yeah. So we don't run that set first thing in the day. We bring her in at the beginning of the day, but we get on with other work while her hair is being done and her makeup is being done and her costume is being done. 
And these things apply with, with complicated uh, preparation like prosthetics as well. So one of the first films I worked on was, um, I was the second AD for the prosthetics unit for Strippers versus Werewolves. And the first thing I had to do was sit down with all of the departments and understand what their objections to each other were. So what were their, their blockers for each other? So by trying to work out where the gaps were, we filled yeah. up the gaps. So we now managed to shave about half an hour off that time. And that was important because the, the reason why I understood the actors were going through so much distress was I saw um, stacks and stacks and stacks of crates of Dr Pepper in the corner of the production office. I don't know if you like Dr Pepper, but I think it's personally vile. Yeah. Um, I said, who's the addict for Dr Pepper? <laughs> and, um, and the third AD said to me that this was the only thing that the actors could drink because the smell of the glue in their nostrils meant that anything that tasted vaguely familiar tasted disgusting. Oh, wow. So with the glue in their nostrils, they couldn't drink tea because all they could taste was, was glue-flavoured tea or glue-flavoured coffee or glue-flavoured coke mm. or glue-flavoured water. But Dr Pepper was such a strange combination of flavours that it didn't matter. But Dr Pepper is full of sugar and it's got caffeine in it. And so what was happening is with these people drinking the Dr Pepper is they're getting dehydrated. Yeah. So... We need to make sure that we minimise the amount of time they need to be in pre-production, uh, sorry, in um, uh, preparation for the day in costume and makeup, and get them out onto the set as quickly as possible, so they can be wrapped as quickly as possible, so they can rehydrate and and be healthy. So these are all things that I I used my other experience for because I didn't have the opportunity to go onto a set and watch and learn. I don't think that's a bad thing. So. Mm -hmm. As a result, using my my wider knowledge, I brought that into film. Things, wow. Do you find it that hard to like get people to take you seriously though? Because like yeah, <coughs> um, I, I did find that because well, actually that was my own fault in a way or my own problem in a way. Um, there's a thing called imposter syndrome, which we are often we often feel. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? And I felt imposter syndrome. I thought I don't deserve to be on a film set. What do I know? And then I realised everyone's in that same situation. Situation, yeah. So I did deserve to be on the film set because I'd got the job. I, did, I got the job because I had the skills. Yeah. So as soon as I went back to that, I said, all right, I'm not an imposter. It doesn't matter that I didn't go to film school. Many of the people on the set didn't go to film school. We're all learning together. Independent film where I work is one of the, um, the, the, the nurseries for film talent anyway. So it was the perfect place for me to be. And that's where I was able to start to develop my skills, develop my methods for running, running, um, running sets. Yeah. Because being a leader as well comes with a lot of experience, I feel. But like, as a woman in the film industry, I feel like sometimes you feel like people don't take you seriously because you're trying to just do your job and tell them what to do, but not with, with telling them what to do, I guess. Like, just direct them in the right way, because that's what you do. But they feel like you're doing that, and they yeah. might feel like, you know... Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, because that. one of the things was, um, I came in as a producer, but I didn't know how the British... Um, right. cultural system worked on sets and so I really felt that I needed to ground myself by seeing how people work together on sets. Be because I had started to try to work in Australia to make films, the culture of um, filmmaking in Australia is different enough. I mean there is a universal culture of film, that is yeah. true, but the actual structural differences were significant enough that I felt that as a producer I needed to understand how my ship would work. That if I'm going to be the, the, the producer, I'm going to, to make this thing happen, I need to know what the, the elements are that are going to make it happen. So I need to be in the hurly-burly, which is why I put myself into the AD position. Now, at the time that I started, there was a very strong bias against women ADs. Mm. There was a really... People would keep talking about the, the AD has to be the sergeant major. The AD, we have to have military precision. We have to be um, moving things along according to a timetable, which is all very much driven by the amount of pre-production that can be done on high studio films or in television. But I had several answers to that. The mm -hmm. first is, why do we need to have military precision? We're not killing people, we're yeah. trying to make art. So we need to have sensitivity to the story. We need to have sensitivity to the fact that people are making art. It's not working with weapons, it's working with people and emotions. And the camera needs to capture those emotions. So we need to try and ensure that the workplace that we create facilitates the performance of the artists. Mm -hmm. If we've got, and I would watch the actors, I would watch the actors go on edge as, um, as ADs would start shouting and yelling and moving on and 
trying to rah-rah people, and the actors would feel on edge. Yeah. And in independent film, we don't always have the luxury of a trailer to separate the actors away from the set enough that they can be unbothered by it. So I became very aware that the mood on set would be affecting the mood in the green room. So it became quite important that I did this. And a lot of the, the people I worked with on camera thought I was just being you know, namby-pamby, that I wasn't being strong, that I wasn't thing, being assertive. It's like if, if you're being too... Like if you're trying to be assertive, they tell you that you're bossing them around. And if you're not, then they tell you you do it because you're being too sensitive or too weak or whatever. So it's like, how do you find that balance? Like, <laughs> I um again, the advantage of being slightly older was I thought, um, what do you know? Yeah. All you've ever done is film. I've done many things. I've worked with supporting firefighters going into fire grounds. I've worked with people in extreme distress. I've worked in courts. I've got perspective here. Whereas yeah. people who at that stage were coming in through through film, through runners, moving up through runners, moving up to camera trainees, sound trainees. They were just repeating and repeating and repeating cycles of what they had seen. So yes, I understood I was a disruptive element to them. I understood that I was changing the way that things were happening. And funnily enough, because I have a Facebook presence, someone on my Facebook page once wrote uh, about me that I was a terrible producer because I paid too much attention to the needs of the crew. And I thought about that for a second. <laughs> And the number of people who leapt to my defence to say it's about time people took care of the crew. Yeah. So when I started, the culture was very, very... Uh, I don't want to use the word masculine, but I just did. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was really about um, driving things through with this perception of what efficiency was. Yeah. But it seemed to me that this was, this was a false, a false method of working because it meant that a lot of the time directors were being asked to move on when the shot hadn't been got. And my producer head would say, that's going to cost us more money in post-production trying to reshoot or trying to do a pickup. Yeah. If we can borrow five minutes from later in the day, why don't we just give it one more go? Why don't we do one more time? Because if we don't have it, we don't have it. And I would go and ask the script supervisor, do we have enough to cut the story together? Have we got enough? And if we didn't, then I would be saying, can we please go one more time? Can we just try to get it to make sure that we have a complete story? And so as I began to do this and began to uh, assert a way of working, I continued to work and I continued to be asked to work. And so I did actually end up doing a lot more assistant directing than I intended to. Uh, I finally was able to move out of assistant directing really around about 2013. Um, the last time I purely was an assistant director was for Gridiron UK. Uh, that, um, that ended up being a film where I became... It was necessary for me to, to assist the producer because I had the producing knowledge and the producing right. aptitude. That film was about to fall over because Universal Pictures had, um, had decided not to back it after production had started and so now there was a £500,000 hole in the budget. So it was where I suppose a, uh, an attitude that men aren't encouraged to have, yeah. but that women are encouraged to have. This is not to say that men don't have this attitude, no. it's just that they've not always been encouraged to be able to show yeah. that side of themselves. So I sat with the crew. Now, the group told me that um, as the first ADR, I should be shutting down the production. And I agreed with him that, yes, I had the right to shut the production down because we weren't going to get paid. But it felt to me that if we could get the production finished, because everything was there except our wages. Mm. The, the cast were there, the camera was there, the locations were there. We'd flown uh, an American football player over from the States it was there, we could finish the film and then there would be a chance of us getting paid. But if we didn't finish the film and we left the film, then of course we weren't going to get paid. Mm -hmm. But not only that, all the work that we had done up until that point would disappear. Yeah. There'd never ever be any record of us ever doing it. Mm -hmm. So I sat with the crew and I just said to them, here's the thing, we're not going to get paid, but our accommodation and our food is covered. I'm going to stay to work on this film. We'll, we only have to go for another week and a half to get the core story finished. If you don't have a job, consider staying with me to work with it on this film. If you do have a job, go with my blessing and get paid, young people. And what was really um, amazing and humbling was that the whole crew, except for the group who had, to, who had to leave because he couldn't afford to be there, they all agreed to stay, to keep working on the film, to finish the film. And in fact, our second AC wanted to stay, but he got an internship at Ridley Scott. And we said, Go. Go. <laughs> yeah. He said, no, I want to stay. I want to stay oh, with you guys. 
we marched him to the station and we put him on the train and he sent a mate up to, um, to help finish the job. And so the film did get finished. It's not what it could have been. Of course it's not what it could have been. Yeah. But it's a complete film. It's a complete piece of work. And for what it is, it's charming. It's, it's too much of that happens in independent film where there is not yeah. enough... Enough dramatism. But the thing that I was able to do was, instead of taking a gung-ho attitude of saying, right, that's it, we're not getting paid, we're off, which is yeah. what another AD might have done, and other ADs I know have told me I should have done that, I said, let's try and make sure that each of us has the credit for having worked on this film. So we all had a feature film credit, and it was premiered two years ago in Crew, and it received a lot of positive um, positive attention. Oh, so that's good to hear. Do you find then that, you know, Japan did it or the Ukraine did it, because of the creative differences as well, um, that people don't believe in projects because they come from somebody that they feel like might not give them, you know, that because you're a woman, I don't want to hear what I say, but I have to say it, like, there's that thing that maybe because they feel that women don't belong in the film industry, they're like, don't dismiss the projects, don't want to fund it, don't want to give money. Or is it just... <coughs> because there's really um, a lot of nominations as well for films. I think, it's a, I think it's a very complicated issue. Yeah. yeah. So the film industry, as I said, when I started, had a very macho sense about it. It was like, we're off to make a film, we're off to win the war. Um, and we know that, that it's only recently that women have really been allowed to engage in military yeah. service. So the, the metaphor itself started by excluding women right from the very start. Exactly, yeah. By saying that this is a militaristic, we're like an army, you're immediately saying, well, this is all the men going off to fight and the women are staying at home. Yeah. Which is men on set, women in a production office analogy. But that, that metaphor is shifting and changing. Um, but it is complicated because there is a culture of long hours working yeah. in film. The thing that I have worked very hard on, and you as a producing student know I've worked really hard on this, is trying to make sure that the amount of work we try to do in a day is manageable and that we don't exhaust people yeah. by pushing them for 16 hours, that after 12 hours people are useless because they're tired. Yeah. So it's worth just saying, right, that's enough, and start again the next day. And so one of the things I've worked very hard on is teaching the people I teach to learn how to understand how much work a human crew can do in a day. So we work on that basis. But even with the long hours, this puts a lot of pressure on women who want to have families or who have family responsibilities. Also men, men who have parental responsibilities, but more often than not, it's the women who have to carry the children. Yeah. So women who become pregnant are then taken out. It's not a very family-friendly environment. It's not a very relationship-friendly environment. Yeah. When you're away on location, when you're away for long hours, it's gonna be really tough to leave your family behind. Mm. So already, it's, it's a, um, an industry that is predisposed towards people who are peripatetic, so they can pick up and move at a moment's notice, who don't have solid um, relationships that, that cause them to be distracted. The number of marriages that break up on film, the number of people who, who become involved with each other on film sets, because that's the only people they ever see. So when you're on in production, it's like you might as well be on another planet. You can't speak to your family during the day because your phone's off, because you're, because you're shooting. Um, by the time you get to the end of the day, you're getting ready for the next day, so you don't have time to have a long discussion with, with people. You can't get on Skype to say goodnight to your kids at 7 o'clock because you might be shooting or you might be doing something. So it's not, a, it's not an industry that is friendly for families, and a lot of women still bear the, the primary responsibility for managing families in the society. Yeah, because we were also discussing uh, like why is it that then a lot of women go for the production of role, not for like camera or sound or that stuff that might actually make you be on set a lot more, mm. even though first AD as well <coughs> is also on set. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, we know why. We know because there is this preconception of like having to be strong or be whatever, like that is as associated with the bent figure, which is not always the case. I mean, mm. very rarely it is the case that, you know, a, a, a girl doesn't want to do something because it's too heavy for, for them. Or, oh, I've, I've got a wonderful gaffer that I work with who's, uh, yeah. Five foot one, and she's actually, I think she's shorter than that. She's <laughs> Finnish, uh, and she is like very, very slight, but she can hump around a 4K without a problem. You know, she, yeah. can, she, she knows how to lift safely, and she's not afraid to ask for help exactly. if the load is too heavy. <clears throat> exactly, because then, because of that attitude we get from people, we feel like we can't even ask for help because the moment we do, yeah. we're like, oh, see, I was right, you can do this. Well, yeah. instead of creating this collaborative kind of like team, um, 
It is starting to change. It, yeah. is, it is starting it to change. It is starting to change, which is nice to see, because I was also thinking, you know, there's not a lot of films that you hear now, nominations that you hear um, from female directors or female crew. Um, and But we are starting to see actresses mm. talking about it and talking about what happens to them with the Me Too movement and Time's Up movements, um, which is great, but we don't often hear about the behind the scenes movement, which is No, important. and that is, that is tricky stuff. Yeah. Um, Again, it just goes back to the fact that culture is changing, but it's yeah. changing slowly. And it does take it does take a moment, like the moment at the moment, where we're really fortunate that we've had some people with profile, the, the actors and actresses who've stepped forward and yeah. talked about what has happened to them in terms of getting projects, which is turning turning the spotlight on part of the industry that is, is very, very, very unpleasant, if not illegal. Hmm. Uh, and part of that is because this industry is perceived as being a sexy type of industry, that it's yeah. somehow cool and fashionable and, and people want to be part of it. I know that. I want to be part of it, so I know what the feeling is like. Most of us who want to be there want to be there because we want to be part of making stories happen. We want to use the skills that we have to do something bigger than any of us could do on our own. So we're already vulnerable because our desire to be part of the industry means that we don't want to be not part of the industry. Yeah. So if we feel a threat, or we feel worried, or we feel concerned, we turn a blind eye, or we don't tell someone that it happened, we don't report it because we don't want to be the person who is excluded from the life that we want to pursue. And that's, that's a horrible place for people to be yeah. at. But bit by bit, as brave people are standing up to say, this has happened to me, and the wider community are starting to say, this shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening to our sons and daughters that they have to sacrifice their principles in order to, to just get a job or even to get an offer of a job that may not actually turn out to be anything. This is really important. So the thing that I do say to young crew is it's really important to join the union because there has been a push against unionisation. But by joining a union, at least there's someone who can speak up for you. It's too hard to speak for yourself. But if you're part of a union, then someone can speak for you. It might not be a, you might not be able to speak to the first AD because the first AD might be the problem. Um, the first the first AD might be a bully, and so you don't want to go and speak to them because you're worried that you'll get yelled at and then yeah. you'll look stupid. Or it might not be able, to, you might not be able to go to the producer because the producer might be the problem. Yeah. So you need to have an impartial body that will support you. And it is really something that I say to young crew: join the union, yeah. join the union because they're not always going to find workplaces that are sensitive. Yeah. Uh, filmmaking is dangerous because it's long and tiring and people make mistakes and people can get killed from those mistakes. And we know there have been three accidents in the last four years where people have yeah. gone to work and not come home. Yeah. And we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Or they've gone to work, the ones we don't hear about, they've gone to work and they've come home damaged and injured and that's affected their ability yeah. to be. That is physically, emotionally, psychologically injured. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I can imagine as a producer, you probably have well, definitely experienced you on your own skin, but also hurt the people coming to you, like telling you that this thing has happened. And yeah. It happens to me as well, so it's like, it, it, is, it is also really tiring and really sad to then see that, you know, everybody goes through it, and then the girls that might be feel discouraged to then keep going as, as well. Like you might. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've been really, really strong about is practical joking on set. Yeah. Um, Banter is fine. It's fine to have a joke. It's fine to have, have uh, a laugh about things to get the tension out. But I'm very, very um, unimpressed with practical joking because it's a form of bullying. Because I've had, um, you know, we, we hear stories of the camera trainee who's asked to go and find a bag of F stops. And uh, we've had the, um, the person who's been told to get a long wait. And they've gone to the camera trainee and said, could I get one of those sausage things? And they've come back with a sausage thing and think, is this what you wanted? And everyone thinks it's really funny. Or an art department, a runner who was um, who was working with the art department and she was sent to go get the striped paint. And so she came to me and she said, where do I find striped paint? And I said, just go back to them and tell them to fuck off. Mm. And so she did. Yeah. Uh, or I had, I had one, uh, again, it's a small trick I give to runners, um, particularly the good runners. You know the one I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> so I often see that um, sometimes there are very, very efficient runners and they get just work to death. And so I've often said to them, okay, what I want you to do for the next half hour is I need you to weigh down that light, that light stand, please. 
and they've gone and they said, oh, that's not a really good job. But then they've realised that by holding the pipe stand, they're not being sent for other jobs. So yeah. they're able to take a break and that get a rest smart. because lovely runners just get, just get run off their feet. And although they are young people, they still need to be treated with respect. Without the runners, the production would fall over. We need people bringing us, the, bringing us drinks. We need people able to do the errands. But we need to respect. And the, the sets need to be based on respect. So as soon as you start introducing pranking, these young people start to think, is this really what I want to do? And so the people that we want, a quiet person might be the next best director we're going to have, but they've been discouraged because they were humiliated in front of the crew and they think this isn't what I want to do. Yeah. So we need a culture of respect. And so each of us has it in us as, as good human beings to stand up and say, so when the, when the camera team start going, oh, that's so gay, one of the things I used to say was, no, wrong, being gay. Yeah. And they go, okay. Just gently, yes, exactly. just gently to stand yeah. up and say, please don't say that. Yeah. But not in a way that says, please don't do that because I'm all offended, because then you end up looking weak. I'm not going to say too much about that, because I, I, I know what you're thinking and I agree with you, yeah. that we shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. But as a case in point, a long time ago uh, in, in Australia, I was a union representative and we were worried about sexual harassment in the workplace. And it came in as a government policy and the boys in the workplace, and I say boys advisedly, decided yeah. they were going to confront the women in the workplace, and I say women advisedly, and they, they went and bought a load of penthouse black uh, magazines. Do they still have penthouse? I don't know. It's probably all online now. Um, and they put all the centrefolds all around the workplace. And so we're sitting there thinking, well, you know, the last thing we want to see in a workplace is a vagina, really. So we thought, how do we, how do we deal with this? And we could have got all offended the women in the workplace because they came to me as the union rep and said what do we do so myself and my deputy uh, union rep took a deep breath and we went to the local uh, sex shop and we bought seven copies of stud and heat and the other gay magazine at the time and next to every vagina was an erect penis the the all the pinups came down within about 20 minutes <laughs> so with a bit of humor and a bit of pointed humor yeah we made the point without having to be all all outraged and therefore have the guy say, well, you can't handle it, you can't handle a bit of banter and not having to go into a deep philosophical argument about why that bit of banter is actually deeply offensive. Yeah. So it's on all of us as, as an enlightened crew and particularly people who've come through the university system who really should have a really good grounding in, in collaborative working and working together. When we see things happening just within our own sphere of influence, just to make a little stand, and it doesn't have, not asking anyone to lead the revolution, just to say, please don't do that. Yeah. Or if you see someone being bullied, reassure them that they're not, they're not worthless, that they are worth, they are worthwhile. Yeah, and that's how we, we can start to change, continue this, this pace of change that's occurring. I mean, one of the things that is really, really fantastic is that when I first started AD, and I was unusual as a woman AD, there weren't that mm -hmm. many, there are more and more women coming to run sets, yeah. and I think that's, that's a very good thing because the energy of women running sets is a different energy to men running sets. I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's different. Yeah. So there are times when a woman running a set is a great thing. However, I was on a set where it was a woman director, a woman uh, DP, a producer who was not there most of the time, and me, and that was too many women running it. And I hate to say that because I sound like a traitor to my yeah, species. It shouldn't really matter. <laughs> but, uh, but it did because... There was no way to have a discussion without people watching how we interacted and how our dynamics worked. And I realised that at some point I was going to have to become very firm. And because these two women were very strong, they would become firm back. And then I'd have to be firmer and then they'd be firmer. And before we knew it, we'd have a nuclear meltdown. So my decision on that case was to leave the set because I felt that, it, that what we needed there was balance. We needed balance between the, the male and female energy. And so I recommended to the producer that a male AD be brought in to help balance out the energy on the set, and it it did the trick. So there are times when, as a, I, I think, I think one of the things that I've said in producing class as well is that we need to have high EQs. We need to be very emotionally aware. We have to be in touch with our own emotions mm -hmm. so that we can help manage the emotions on the set because a set yeah. is an emotional environment. And that's where you sometimes have to say, what does my ego say? My ego says I want to muscle through this and actually show that I can do it. But then my brain and EQ say, no, this is not good for me. It's not good for the film. I'm the strong one. I should withdraw. So that's, that's the decision that I made there.
Yeah, that's so weird. Me is yeah, you know what I think about it. I was saying like it shouldn't really matter whether there's there's women or men, like it should just be of course this ideal thing of everybody working together perfectly, which is never gonna happen realistically. Because of A everything that we've been told and how we're we perceive and we're forced to kind of perceive stuff through years. So I do understand that, you know, there there needs to be some sort of balance mm. there as well. Um, but it is really interesting to think of that because of course you don't I don't know it's like as a woman in a role that is trying to just get things done and having to change my attitude to get those things done because other people don't think that my attitude is right for, for them which might be the case because of course people sometimes you know are a bit too aggressive and like there's but it should be about the person not about their gender mm-hmm. So I guess that's, but it is. However, one would say that your person and your gender are sort of kind of tied together. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely. Because we actually had this discussion on um, one of the other episodes. It was really nice to go back to it and more like, you know, um, we had a transgender woman, a transgender boy and men and um, a non-binary person. And it was interesting to see all all the perspective and how it, it should, like, you are forced to kind of think that this thing and this attitude is right for you and that's what you should do mm. because that's how society perceives you. But at the end of the day, yes, it is tied to your persona, but it's also what you decide to make of it. Of course, of course, because so, it is the, the most important thing, I think, is if you are an authentic person yeah. and if people trust you because they, they realise that you're not putting on a performance or you're not putting on a face, yeah. you're more likely to be able to affect change and affect the, the way that work occurs because trust is the most important thing yeah. that we have. If that trust is broken, if people think that I am not going to listen to them, if people think that I'm not going to pay respect to their views, then they're not going to come and talk to me mm-hmm. and they're not going to share their views. And one of the things that, that this industry is about is about communication. Yeah, it's about communicating ideas and communicating stories. So if we are the producers and we can't communicate, what are we doing? We, we need to be think, thinking about doing something different, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, it's been a really long conversation, I feel, but I was just like, as a final thing, which I feel like you've done already, but like, if you had any advice for just women who want to go into the creative industry, and as I said, same women advisory as well, like, um, to everybody, really, who wants to it go is, into It is to everybody, industry, yeah. but because I'm a woman, speaking from a woman's perspective. Yeah, from your perspective, definitely. Um, the thing that I would say to anybody is to understand what your passion is, mm-hmm. to do this because you're passionate about it, because it's going to be hard. It's going to be harder for women in some ways because of our expectations in society that we're going to be looking after our parents or looking after our children or looking after other people. And it's much more socially acceptable for a young man to be single or to be in a series of relationships and able to go anywhere at the drop of a hat and be in another country for three months or six months and then back home again and then out again. It's not as acceptable for young women and it's not always what young women want themselves. So the the thing is, is this what you want? And if it is, is this what you want right now? It's just because you aren't wanting to come to the film industry right now doesn't mean that you can't come later. Why are you wanting to do this? Don't do this because you think it's going to be greedy, because it's not. It's going to be hard, hard work. What you get at the end of it is a sense of satisfaction that you've been something that is bigger than anything you could have done on your own. If you want to do it for uh, a short period of time to see if you like it, that's fine, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be be tough. So be yourself. Find out who you are. Be yourself. Be authentic. Be honest. Be truthful. Be authentic. And people will come to respect you. Uh, you'll go through hard times. You'll go through a lot of rejection. When you go through the rejection, remember, it's not you that's being rejected. It's just not now. Yeah. It's not you. It's just not yeah. now. That The fact that I got rejected today doesn't mean I'm going to get rejected tomorrow. And of course it stings and it hurts. And you sit there thinking, questioning yourself. But remind yourself that you do this because your passion is driving you forward. And... Bring your passion back again and get up and go out again the next day and just keep going and keep going and eventually you will you will make it eventually you will make it that's my thank you yeah, that's what i always think is that it's always hard to it's always easy 
to think what you did wrong in that moment ages ago or you know the day before or whatever but then you never realize kind of that in that moment maybe that's the best you could do mm. and then if you don't think that's the best you could have gone just move forward and think that's the best you can do now just keep going yeah so thank you for that that's really <laughs> nice and thank you for being with us today it's really my pleasure it and thank you for really what a lovely chat we had <laughs> yeah it was just really really nice and also not to have the whole restriction of producer like tutoring and stuff but uh, it, it's it's great yeah so once again thanks and now we're moving to Otto's corner who we have a little special thing because it's not the usual thing he went on a mission this time so yeah we'll see you we'll, we'll hear you or you'll hear me after that <laughs> So, hello, how are you, people listening? Um, I'm here with James. Hello. And Rory. Hello. Who run the Film Society at uni. Um, so, yeah, what do you guys do and why do you do it? Um, so, basically, we, uh, we kind of run the, the ABSU Film Society at the moment. And um, kind of our, our general kind of vision statement with it so far has been to just kind of curate kind of films that would be less likely to be seen at like a, in a film society s setting so it could be anything from like uh say punishment park all the way to the happiness of catacurus it's like there's no real genre or yeah there's a real real range you guys show isn't there i've been going for like two years now and like the amount of films that you guys have shared that I don't think I would have seen at all otherwise is great. Like, it really expands your idea of, like, what film is. Like, oh, yeah, well, so, like, what are, like, your favourite films you say that you guys have shown? Ooh. Any, like, ones that come to your head? Ooh, favourite films of what we've shown? Um, My favourite one, out of all the ones we've shown from this year and the year before, was uh, Dead or Alive 2. Which we screened to a mass of two people. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolutely fantastic film. As is Russia '88, which we screened twice, and Punishment Park, which we've done the same. Can you tell us a little bit more about those films? Which one? All of them. Um, Punishment Park is by uh, Peter Watkins. Peter Watkins, '71, right. um, and it's essentially a mockumentary about uh, a sort of post-Vietnam kind of like camp for the McCarthy era left-wing uh, convictions and it's um, it's it's just a pretty for 1971 it's a pretty um, modern, modern film and it's mm. pretty shocking it's pretty surreal in the sense of its casting and stuff like this as well yeah it's unlike anything I'd seen before that it's like you think you've seen what a mockumentary is, but that's completely separate, yeah. and it's it's incredible. So is Russia eight eight as well. Yeah, well, I I missed that one. What was that? That's that's essentially another mockumentary. It's a Russian one uh, from uh, like two thousand eight, something like that, and it's um, a it's essentially a mockumentary about a guy making a film about his mate's Nazi propaganda film wow. and it's him documenting it's all a documentary but it's him documenting the the making of a nazi propaganda film and how it just gets out of control and he kind of just films it for the i don't know sake of the film i suppose mm, you mentioned dead or alive as well that was that was special <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was takeshi miki is a hell of a hell of a filmmaker yeah i think i think we'll leave it with that one <laughs> yeah. that under there. um but yeah no it's it's there's pretty hard-hitting stuff like that, and then there's also some really, like, fun stuff that, you, like, really, really obscure, weird films. Like, um, there was this random film called Biozombie that Rory <laughs> just happened to find that was, well, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just this really tacky... It's Japanese, wasn't it? Japanese zombie movie. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. And... Yeah, that was that was a treat. That was a. <laughs> that was a I, it's always treat. great when you like get like a film that's kind of a bit schlocky and a bit fun, but at mm. the same time has moments where you're like, oh, 
There's a really oh. like inventive moment in there. Wasn't yeah, there? like that, that mirror shot and stuff is just absolutely crazy. Yeah, so seek it out, bio zombie. <laughs> you can find it at some car boot sale yeah. or whatever. Um, the most suspicious DVD case of all time. So. Yeah, it was it was it was interesting. Yeah. Um, Shout out to uh, Zombie Ninety as well. Zombie Ninety. Zombie 90 oh, yeah. look up the compilation <laughs> on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, you, that is a treat. That was a, that was a choice treat. <laughs> Better than the room. Better yeah, definitely. Hundred percent. It's safe to say that Zombie Ninety still has the most people we've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 20 on us. It was yeah, really it was like great. oddly high numbers for such a <laughs> abrasive film. It was great. Um, yeah, I also wanted to ask you about your um, random acts film you made, James. Okay. Um, because yeah, this this week, I think it's this week, um, B- AUB um, is doing a beach clean. And um, yeah, because it's about environmental concerns i gather so can you talk to us a little bit more about the process of how that happened and um um yeah uh so with anthropocene it was it was kind of the case of it started off as like a, an idea for a cold opener to a doc i wanted to do about like ocean pollution and stuff in the past but um through the the kind of rhinomax program that um is sadly it seems to have actually stopped um this past march and it, it doesn't look like it'll be continuing but um, that kind of offered the opportunity to take the cold opener and kind of just turn it into its own mm. film. But um, when I was kind of doing all the development work on it and when it got commissioned and stuff, um, there really wasn't a lot of discussion in the media about ocean pollution. But then um, once we'd actually wrapped on the film and we were waiting for it to get released, Blue Planet 2 came out. And that kind of completely kick-started a conversation about ocean pollution and like the, the kind of general public's... Um, conversation and discourse and so i i think it's uh it's really good that it's an issue that's now actually getting discussed um and it's great to see the university kind of standing alongside like fighting the issue with the mm. kind of beach cleanup day and stuff it's uh because it, it, it really is quite a uh, a monumental threat to to our sort of kind of way of existence and our the safety of like water and stuff in the future and everything from from the ocean mm. where can people find that it's um if you uh if you search on facebook anthropocene it'll be on the uh, the random acts how do you spell anthropocene <laughs> that's yeah. the real question <laughs> it's a guessing game really yeah but, um now if you if you do a quick search on facebook you can find it there but if you also do a, a search on the uh, the actual random acts website itself it'll mm. uh, it'll pop right up at the top there as well brilliant yeah and we talked about it before it's like the closest parallel I can think of is it's it's a bit like the big shave. It's this kind of like yeah. strange, unsettling, bizarre film with a really strong message. Um, yeah, and I, I had a couple of quick fire questions I wanted to ask you. All right, these are really hard hitting, so prepare yourselves. What's your favorite color? Uh, Guys, come on. Purple. Purple? Rory? Green. Favorite number? Okay, okay. Um, Favourite appearance of Donald Trump on screen? Um, Being beaten up by Stone Cold Steve Austin (laughs) in the WWE. That's a good one, that's a good one. I really like that moment, and I think it's like uh, Home Alone 2. I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one. Um, (laughs) Fourth question. So, if you have a dog, um, uh, what would you... Celebrity, filmmaker, or actor, you have to name it. And what kind of dog would it be? So, you have to name any kind of dog after It'd any... It would be Donald Pleasance the Corgi. <laughs> <laughs> James? Oh, my God. Um, I don't know. I'd probably go Nicolas Cage as a chihuahua. Wow. So, the right answers were... <laughs> best colour was green. Best number is seven. Best Donald Trump appearance was Sex in the City, but I would have taken 989's Ghosts <laughs> Can't Do It. And Dog was a pit bull named um, Denzel Washington. So, yeah, thanks for that, guys. <laughs> um, when is Film Society? Uh, Film Society is every Monday 
uh, between five and eight usually. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just kind of keeping up to date on the uh, the Film Society Facebook group um, because we, we change rooms every so often. But yeah, Brilliant. Thanks a lot, guys. Throughout this entire thing, I've noticed a tiny hole there. Oh, I have a hole in my trousers. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Thank you for that, Otto. Um, I think it was truly beautiful. And just, yeah, I have no words. But, like, seriously, thanks for doing that. And thanks for creating this little extended Otto's Corner, which you promised you were going to surprise us. So you did. Maybe you'll come back. Maybe you won't. Who knows? Well, we're not firing him anytime soon. So, yeah, he might come back. (laughs) Um, Anyway, now it's just me today. So I'm going to tell you about some little things that are happening around university first of all there's the gallery news and what's going on in the gallery and with the exhibition pictures at an exhibition it's going to be here until the 4th of may so it's not a lot of time for us to kind of go through it but definitely interesting times because this exhibition was um actually based on the idea that the composer musoski sorry if i pronounce that wrong was inspired by some illustration by Victor Hartmann and he created music on top of that. So this exhibition revolves around the fact that now the illustration course found inspiration in the composer's music um, and also in the music of Maurice Ravel to create their illustrations. So it's a really nice circle and it's like a really nice take on this interplay between music and visual art. Um, So yeah, that's sounds really great so i hope you guys walk through it and stop to look at what's going on so after that there is also another interesting event because sunday was earth day um we are very aware that of course the problem of the environment is becoming very dangerous and there's a lot of stuff going on um, about how to be more um, eco-friendly and more, more aware of how to help the environment so we are going to tackle on that a little bit more on our next episode, but for now we suggest you go to the Syrian organized beach clean uh, on the 28th of April. Um, what is happening is that people are giving away a couple of hours of their time to just tackle pollution, go onto the beach and clean up a little bit. So yeah, they'll bring some bean bags, they'll bring some gloves, so you don't even have to worry about that. You just literally show up um and some warm clothes as well in case it gets cold and just some shoes for you to be able to walk on the beach um so yeah and we'll put down the event in the description so that you can look it up and there's a lovely like list of things well not so lovely because it's actually quite sad but it will motivate you to go and help we'll be there i mean i'll be there and of course we'll be able to kind of help out a little bit um, if you do want to go also it's probably better that you sign up to the link that it's gonna be on the event so that they can have an idea of how many people are gonna go and also coffee will be provided for free so there's literally no excuse for you to stay at home I know it's a Saturday but it's gonna be a good Saturday so yeah um, and also apparently April is as a stress awareness week, which I didn't know about, but we're all stressed. So good luck with all of your deadlines. Um, at the end of the term is coming, the end of the year is coming. Uh, people are graduating, people are going to new things. So good luck with all of that. And thanks for listening and spending some of your time listening to our lovely interview with Claire. And yeah, so I'll, you'll hear from me next time. And goodbye. <laughs>